From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. Welcome to the Learning Circle. This is the show created by learning professionals for learning professionals. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm joined today by Megan Torrance of Torrance Learning. Megan has over two decades in the learning and development field, performing instructional design and consulting, as well as project management. But it's the project side of Megan that we'd like to tap today, specifically with regard to new methods of development. We've been hearing more and more about things like iterative and agile approaches to development. Now, most instructional designers are acquainted with the systems model ADDIE. It's an acronym that describes the overall design system, which includes analysis and design, development, implementation, and evaluation sometimes depicted in a linear or waterfall sequence, which may not be entirely fair, but nevertheless, there is this movement afoot in our world, this L&D world, where we're looking at other ways to develop our learning products. But we'll get more into that in a moment. I want to first welcome our guest, Megan. Welcome to The Learning Circle. Anthony, thank you so much, and uh, quite an honor to be here. I'm very excited for this conversation. Oh, I'm very happy to have you. It was our mutual friend and a former guest on the show, Dr. Alicia Sanchez, who is my colleague here at DAU, who referred you. So again, very happy to have you with us. But let's dive into our topic today, which is agile and something called llama, which uh, we know the animal, but I want to understand llama, the development method. Megan, let's start right there, though, with Agile. What is Agile? What is this argument for Agile? Sure. So Agile is both a mindset as well as a series of techniques and rituals or meetings by which a team proceeds through a design and development process uh, in a way that is very iterative. We'll talk about that. Um, an incremental that allows the product to develop um, very flexibly, very interactively with business sponsors and the project team and the customers. That approach allows for an organic definition of scope and deliverables as we proceed. And so it's the ability to sustain that that's the mindset that's associated with it as, as well. Yeah, I'm hearing a very inclusive mindset right there. In any development method, project management, we hear a lot about stakeholders and all the folks who have to be at the table. How is it different with Agile? You know, one of the things that I will say is not inherent, but often happens uh, with a traditional model is that we get very focused on meeting the needs of stakeholders. We get very wrapped up in our work with subject matter experts, and we should uh, because they provide the the content um, and, and so much insight into our work. But we risk losing sight of the end customer. And one of the things that we're going to do, one of many things, going to do different in agile context is an iterative development, constant release of small things that are testable. And we test them with the sponsor who is there to provide direction um, and make sure that we've got our messages correct. Our subject matter experts, we're going to make sure that we are accurate and complete. 
our fellow instructional designers or editors or anybody else who is helping to improve and hone that product, but also the learner. See, none of those people, the sponsor, the subject matter experts, our fellow instructional designers or the copy editor are ever going to use that piece of learning to actually do their jobs better. And so until we're also testing with the actual end learner, we're not getting all the feedbacks appropriate to steer that project in the directions it needs to go in. Yeah, that is the most relevant feedback is the learner. Ironically, the the user of this, the person who has to perform based on a learning product gets sort of squeezed out sometimes. The other thing I'm hearing is that this is kind of a process of of building a little bit, showing a little bit, but this rhythm of building and showing brings the whole concerned crowd in closer to the process. Absolutely. It's a super transparent process um, and a, a very, I like to get it's a, a full contact communication process. Um, there's lots of, of communication all the way around. A traditional ADI model often has us thinking like that evaluation component, which is so important, needs to happen after the implementation. Yeah, right. Uh, I comes before E. And so um, what uh, what we're then doing in that case is we're releasing something. We're not sure it works. So by doing small releases iteratively and incrementally throughout the project and getting them all the way out to the, the end customer, the learner, we're actually seeing if what we're going to release has a chance of working before we've done all of the work to actually build something and release in a great big big, splashy release. Right. And if you're failing, if you're missing the mark, you're not spending a lot of time going down that blind alley only to unveil it, hoping for a wonderful reaction and then it falling flat with the customer. Spot on, right? So in each iteration, we're looking not only at, um, are we on the right direction? Do we have the facts correct? What's next? We're also, when we're really on our game saying, are we actually solving the right problem here? And that's something I want to know. It's super disruptive to find out that you have gone in the wrong direction. I get it. (laughs) Um, But it is so much easier to find that out in month two of a project than month 10 of a project. Um, And so when we can make those minor adjustments early on, that's absolutely huge. Yes. You'd rather spend 20% of the budget to find out than 80% of the budget and time. So yes, super important. And I think that, you know, I've always found just as someone who has been a developer, depending on the client, some clients are very, you know, they're laissez-faire and hands-off. Others uh, have, uh, you know, an urgency and a sense of control. Not that they're controlling in a negative way, but uh, there's a lot at stake. And the more you include a customer, I have found, the more paradoxically, actually, they they can relax. And they, they actually, any behavior to control those impulses to micromanage, it actually goes away. So I think Agile sort of resolves that dynamic. You know, I could not agree more. It is a trust building process. And uh, because you are showing your work often every two weeks and, and getting that feedback, you are demonstrating that you are right there with them. You're listening to them. You're actually asking, did I get this right? And that process, um, absolutely, right? It, 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 everybody relaxed. The other thing, Anthony, that helps people relax and really focus in on building the right product rather than managing all the drama and politics that go along with work is in an agile process, because we are constantly asking for change 
and asking for that input. We're not putting up barriers around, oh, that's not what you signed off on. Oh, that's out of scope. That's not what we agreed to. Oh, hey, you know what? Two weeks ago, you told me to do this and that's why I did it. Now you're telling me something different. And all of a sudden, I don't know about you, right? my, My blood pressure is going up just talking about this, right? That's what we get into when we have a mindset, I'm not saying Addie purports this, but following the Addie mindset means that upfront, we have done a lot of analysis and a lot of design, and then we got somebody to sign off on it that that was correct. And the thinking often is, is that if scope creep happens afterwards, it's because I didn't do a good enough job upfront getting all of the requirements. Or or the and client forgot, like, yeah, the, somehow the client is having amnesia about what they signed up for and we're pointing out. Yeah, it's it's like a game of contractual defense that you're playing, which the high blood pressure you're describing, it puts you in that defense posture rather than, you know, just quickly uh, recalibrating. You can fail forward, you can adjust, and people understand that they're going to see a, a next draft very quickly and we'll probably be feeling a whole lot better. Absolutely. And this is, um, there, there's, there's a multi-way communication to bring the drama out of that, right? Um, it is the, 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 the instructional designer and developer, right? Needs to this with a, an, an approach in which we are uh, collectively looking to solve this, the, the, the right problem, not the problem that you defined to, for me two weeks ago. The, le- the instructional design leader, right? Needs to be creating an environment in which it is safe to try something out, see if it works and make adjustments if it doesn't. And the project sponsor needs to come into that space in the very same way. And how we set up a project, how we talk about a project, how we talk about how we're going to work plays a lot into the success of that team moving forward. So we've defined really the the major features of Agile and the benefits of an iterative approach to development. But now we have this new thing, a new word that has been introduced called Llama. How does Llama differ from Agile? Sure thing. Um, and and it's, it's funny because llamas are super popular right now. I've got llamas pajamas and llama gloves and llama hats and llama mugs and posters. Um, and we thought of this way before llamas were cool. <laughs> so what had happened is um, about 2009, I started really embracing Agile methods. Um, and at the time, Agile was really dominated by it. It came from the software development industry. And um, and a lot of the work that's done in software looks a lot like the work that we do in instructional design. And so that seemed to me to make sense. But there are a few things that are different between a software environment and an instructional design environment. And we found ourselves modifying our approach to Agile to suit that instructional design context. Over time, about 2012, we started to ask ourselves, can we really still call this Agile? Or are we doing something that's so different from Agile that we shouldn't call it Agile anymore? Um, And this is before a lot of the Agile derivatives had really started emerging like we have uh, now in in the community. And so we decided, uh, no kidding, we were sitting around one day, we mapped the whole thing out. We said, is this still Agile? And someone on the team said, well, it's a lot like Agile. And what do instructional designers do? We help make things easier to remember. So a lot like Agile, and somebody said la, and somebody said ma. And the next thing you know, we have the lot like Agile management approach. And 
That's what we started calling it. We actually weren't sure if it would take off. It was useful for us, but it's actually really, really popular now. And um, so we we differentiate our approach to agile methods. So Llama is really best suited for an instructional design context. Scrum, which is an approach to implementing agile and extreme programming, another approach different from Scrum, but they all all, you know, Llama, Scrum, Extreme Programming, all are based in the same Agile values, the same Agile principles, just different applications for different environments. Okay. So I wonder if you could draw that distinction a little bit and then tell us how Llama integrates with Addy. Because I've, as I've acquainted myself with Llama, I do see depictions where there's a relationship between Addy and Llama. Yeah. And, you know, let's actually, I'm going to start there, right? So the concept of Addy, analysis, design, development, implementation, evaluation, actually makes a lot of sense. Um, What I do is I simply wrap the loops much more tightly. So I'm doing multiple rounds of Addy before I get to what we would consider an implementation. So if you stretch the regular timeline for a project, an Addy project out, I will, during that time frame, have done several rounds of mini Addy within. Um, And each time, as far as, as close as I can to the end learners, I get that product out to learners to get that evaluation very early on. A lot of times in, uh, in instructional design, Anthony, we're already working iteratively, right? We make a first draft, we make a storyboard, we make a beta version, and then we make something that we release. It's the, the there, there are two things going on that are different in an agile context. One is who we're getting that iteration out to. And like we talked, right, we want to get that iteration out to the end learners as much as we can. And then the other are the, the processes and practices around how do we estimate, how do we plan those projects, how do we manage our work and the mindset that are different from Addy. Yeah, and I want to get into those particulars of estimating scoping, all these concerns of project management are very challenging. And these are skill sets that get sort of added onto an instructional design skill set, which is hard enough. I wonder if we can get into that a little bit. Where I would like to start, though, is you speak to the idea of using stories to define scope. And I, but by the way, I like the mnemonic right there. There's uh, two S's there, but stories and scope. Tell me a little more about what that means in practice. Sure thing. So in a software context with Agile, um, the user story is a fundamental unit of scope. And a user story expresses what an individual user or a prototypical user would need to do, right? It's a who, it's got a what and a why. And that user story uh, can then be collected. The, the user story generation process is a brainstorming process out of which then we can filter and sort and say, we're going to, to prioritize these stories and we're going to hold on to these other stories until later. And that process of creating that scope definition and then spacing it out over time and identifying more clearly, typically a project will will very clearly identify the first few iterations, the first few sprints, and the first few releases, right, Um, in terms of what stories we are focusing on. Future releases that are 
far out ahead on the calendar, we have a, a backlog of stories that we can draw from over time to, to then say, okay, now this is important. And so what we're doing is we're prioritizing work that is defined in complete user tasks, a story, for that software team to work on. Now, software teams are focused on features and functions. Think about what does software do? It delivers features and functions. In instructional design, we absolutely have features and functions. But you know what? Performance objectives are an awkward fit into that feature and function context. And so we, I, I started out early on really kind of force-fitting an objective to fit an agile user story, and it didn't quite work for me. Um, but I still needed a way to identify that same granular bit of scope is it in scope? Is it out of scope? Uh, how are we handling it? Um, what is the associated practice activity and the depth of fidelity and all those things? And I then, so this was uh, 2010, 11, um, stumbled on Kathy Moore's action mapping process. And there are other ways of identifying scope in incredibly granular ways. I happen to just adore Kathy Moore's process. She's got a wonderful blog, by the way. I, I love all her articles. Oh my gosh, go buy her, like everybody pause right now, the podcast, go buy her books, sign up for her newsletter, take any course she's got because she's she's really got some amazing stuff that is designed for an to, to help you create better instructional design. What I also found is that it also helps us from a scope perspective, I build those, the equivalent of a user story for instructional design, incredibly granular scope in terms of what parts of the job, the, the learner's job are we supporting, and what are we building to support that? I wonder if you can provide a simple example just to help us see this. So, say like the task was, you know, the old example of changing a tire or something. Would that be a, a way that you could tell us how the stories lead to scope? Sure thing. Um, so, so what we can do is look at, right, if the goal, right, so at Kathy Moore's process um, I hope to do it justice here. Uh, Kathy Moore's process will have you um, uh, start in the center with the goal, right? So we start with, you know, the, the goal is to um, be able to get back on the road after a flat tire within half an hour, you know, half an hour um, and to be doing so safely, right? So there's some, some uh, acceptance criteria around that. And so you could then say in Kathy Moore's process, right? What does a successful performance, right? Goal attainment. What, what are the behaviors that the person on the side of the road is doing to meet that goal? Well, the first one would be to decide whether or not I can change the tire and this is the right place to do it. Okay. That's one. Set that aside. The next would be to jack up the car, right? That I'm making, I'm pulling things out of thin air right here, right? You jack up the car, you pull off the tire, you put on your donut tire, you let the jack down, and then you put all your tools away. Right, let's say those are the key um, on-the-job performances that we want the learner to do. This in set of behaviors, we can then determine what are we going to actually teach? What is actually in scope? And we make this decision with the business sponsor, and we can test it with the learners. And so, Anthony, you came to me with a Megan, I want a course on how to change a tire. 
Well, what we just then did was we leveled up the goal. What is the goal? Is the goal to change tires? No, actually, the goal is to get back on the road after a flat. Okay, that's important, right? Right there, I'm helping to define scope. The next thing is I define scope starting with a decide if I need to change a tire. Now, we may, from a scope definition perspective, say, actually, that's not what you had in mind. The learners probably know whether or not they've got AAA or not. There's too many different variables. We're just not going to go there. So we have just taken that entire hunk of story, right, that entire objective, and said, you know what? Yes, it is absolutely part of attaining the goal of getting back on the road, but it is out of scope for our project. And so here we've taken this very, very granular bit and in a shared space, we have all decided, you know what, we're going to set that one down and not focus on it. You may also say that, you know what, Megan, the how to actually tighten all the lug nuts, that component of put the new tire back on, right, is something that the entire um, the, 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 the lug nut department is actually going to have a meeting four weeks from now in Orlando to decide what our new processes and procedures are for lug nut tightening. <laughs> and so that piece of, of content is in flux right now. And I'm going to say, great, I'm going to deprioritize that and focus on the other pieces next, right? So here I'm using very granular bits of scope around a task performance. I can then even go further. We can, um, you know, then say within the jack up the car step, right? How are we going to practice? Well, practice in this concept, we have multiple different ways. So we identify granularly unique ways to practice. And then we as a project team with our business sponsor can identify which ones of these do we want to do versus not do. And we may even say, we're going to start with showing people a video. It's simple. It's cheap. We can do it online. And then we can test it and see if that was sufficient and whether they actually need to have an interactive practice or an on-the-job practice. So all of these things are, are very familiar to most instructional designers. Here we just have action mapping and Agile providing a construct for all of us to talk about that in a really granular way. I love that answer. I, I appreciate that. And that, that gives us something we can hang our hats on with specifics, how certain things become a part of the scope, how we can decide to maybe defer something or take it out of scope. Now, Megan, you have this very interesting phrase in your Llama Talks, which is the Zero Surprises Project. Please tell us what that means, because that's a very promising term. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, right? Because there will always be surprises. Um, but what we want to do is, is not create an environment where surprises come big and late. Right? So what we want to do is, is create an environment in which we're, we're being really, really transparent about timelines and expectations, really, really flexible. So when we can be really, really flexible, then things become less surprising. So uh, there's basically four steps here. We first start by breaking great big projects down into little ones. So if I have a great big project that involves some instructor-led training and some e-learning and some software and some performance support and some mobile tools, I'm going to break down each of those projects and each one will have its own work stream, right? And, and this isn't a revolutionary concept. 
So I'm going to break big things down into little things. If I have 24 e-learning modules, I'm going to break those down into 24 work streams or maybe 12 if they're really, really tiny and I can group them together. But here, what I'm doing is I'm making sure that things don't get stuck waiting on other things that are utterly unrelated. I like to think about it like this. Um, I used to work in Manhattan and live in New Jersey. And at the end of the day, at the Holland Tunnel, there were about two lanes going under a bridge or under the, the river to get from New York to New Jersey and 13 lanes of traffic trying to merge in. Only two were gonna go. All 13 can't go. And if you wait for all th the first car and all 13 to be ready, you're not going to make it any faster than if you just allowed the thing that was gonna move fastest first go anyways, right? And so that that managing that 13 lanes down into two uh, is really a big part of what the instructional uh, design project manager does on a project. But we wanna break these big things into little things. This also allows us to test, right? So we, we've been talking about getting small iterations out so that I can find out if they're going to work. If I have 24 modules of a course, I'm gonna run the first one, maybe two through several steps in the process so I can start getting feedback before I start working on everything else. So what I don't want to do is write 24 storyboards only to find out that there's something wrong that I could have fixed once and then just implemented 23 times, right? So um, we're, we're, we're generally going to stagger things out so that we can be constantly incorporating new learning into our work. And Agile is inherently a learning process. So there's a lot of reasons why we're gonna break our great big things down into little ones. There's also a, an added benefit is it helps your subject matter experts and your reviewers um, pace their work out over time. So that then brings us to step two of Zero Surprises Project Management, where we're gonna do the planning from the big to the little. So we're gonna have what I call the, the big arc of the project, right? When do we start? When do we want all the things to be done? What are some of the, the major milestones along the way? And we stop there and we ask, what else is going on? Does this timeline work for you? If I've given you two weeks to review something, is that enough? Are you planning on going on vacation? in the middle of me and my perfect little instructional design plan to release something. Is this busy season for the subject matter experts or for the learners or for some other set of resources that we need to participate? Is this a use it or lose it vacation environment in which nothing gets done in December because everybody's taking the vacation they're about to lose in January? All of these questions are really, really important and allow us to shape a schedule that actually starts to work before we start working the schedule, right? And this is a fantastic time to be communicating with your sponsor and your stakeholders and subject matter experts and the people who control access to your learners that you're in this for them. This is a flexible process. We're working together. 
And once I have that done, I then work from the little to the big. On a daily basis, I am working on small tasks that are going that we're going to estimate, we're going to build up, we're going to, to plan iterations around and make sure that our sets of iterations get us to those milestones that our, our, our bigger plan has, has created. And this is a, a dynamic back and forth, right? We're going to plan from the top down, we're going to work from the bottom up, and if those two don't match, that's an opportunity for us to start talking. I'm hearing a lot of good project stuff in here, healthy project habits. I'm seeing a Gantt chart in my mind, actually. When you were talking about the Holland Tunnel, I'm thinking about critical path. I'm also thinking about tasks that can be staggered, and I'm thinking about dependencies and things that can be decoupled in a way where you can work on things concurrently. So uh, this is also tracking with just healthy project planning that's kind of conventional, but makes this, I think, attainable by instructional designers. And you're, you're spot on here. And, and here's why, right? Very little of Agile is revolutionary or new. It's a mindset and a different way of, of approaching some of the common problems we've all been trying to solve for decades. Um, a lot of people say, oh my gosh, I see a Gantt chart here. Um, I actually have a love-hate relationship with Gantt charts. Um, I they, they tend to encourage very rigid thinking. And in a Gantt chart-shaped environment, when we say, hey, let's go back to the drawing board because this doesn't quite work. That's a positively dramatic conversation in most organizations, right? Because I've got a critical path. I've got a Gantt chart. I've got this. You told me to hit this date, this resources, and this scope, and now you're messing it up. And so it's a mindset thing that it's not, it's like PowerPoint. PowerPoint's bad, not bad. It's what we do with it, right? Correct. A Gantt chart in and of itself isn't bad, but the behaviors it tends to reinforce can be problematic. A Gantt chart is a fantastic communication tool with your leadership. Maybe not a great day-to-day management tool. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, honestly, most projects go off the rails, not for a lack of Gantt chart views, but for a lack of communication <laughs> and the other things that you've touched on. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's so great that you mentioned that because step four in, in Zero Surprises project management is to make it visual. Agile is visual. Um, in the early 2000s, when it was first created, right, and 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 very traditional pra- practitioners who aren't living in a pandemic use a lot of sticky notes, whiteboard walls, war room walls, right? It's it's it is it borrows a lot from Lean in terms of making our work visual, making our process progress visual, and and one of my agile mentors, Rich Sheridan, likes to say, at no point should the project's process be a mystery. And so when it is visual, we have the opportunity to to have a a touchstone and a reference point for when scope change comes in. We say, okay, I can now actually see what the impacts of this additional work or this change or this work that we're setting aside and not doing. I can see what impacts that makes on the project. Now, are you describing kind of a Kanban to get into some lean talk uh, or other methodologies? I'm thinking about things like Trello or Jira or card-based ways of seeing your tasks. Are, is that what you're referring to when you liken the, the Post-it notes to this process? Absolutely. All of those, Jira, um, version one, uh, all those software tools uh, 
emerged from a need to manage agile projects online. Right? We use Trello a lot. Um, a Kanban board is absolutely how many projects are laid out, um, which implies a flow of work where I can see a task moving from the backlog, which is my list of things I've committed to, to what is in progress right now, which should be a small list. Right? The goal is to not be switch tasking too much so that I can actually be delivering things to something that's ready for review and testing to see that something that we're calling done for now. And so that, that visual flow through is absolutely what we use. Um, our team uses Trello for that. Our teams who use Llama use, use Trello for that. Um, there are other teams um, that, uh, that I know of that very successfully use the software-based teams or tools like Jira and um, uh, version one and whatnot. Um, sometimes those tools are a little bit heavy-handed for instructional design projects. I can see that. Yeah, I can see how some of them are a little heavy duty. Again, going back um, a little while in the conversation to how you were talking about how Agile was really created for programmers and programmers have different needs. They do a lot of heavy documentation of code and I imagine concerns like that made it fit like a glove for them and hence the tailoring to our environment and maybe simplifying because we don't have some of those technical concerns. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what I, what I like to do is, right, do what works for your team and, and in teams who, who work with software developers will find that um, using the same tools that the software developers use uh, helps bring them in nice and close, close and cozy. And that works. And suddenly the software developers have a, better insight to what's going on in instructional design. It works for everyone. So Megan, you know, a lot of this sounds very accessible. Many things are more familiar than we realize as I've, you know, I've tried to liken some of what you're saying to things that are familiar. And like you've said, it's not really a, a revolution. There's, there's nothing necessarily new altogether. So this is an evolution how do we get started, though? A lot of us want to just, you know, we're excited to hear about this. Where do we begin? Great question, Anthony. Um, there's a few things, right? So one, I strongly rec recommend learn with your team, right? Uh, take a course, read a book. It could be my course. It could be my book. It could be somebody else's course. It could be somebody else's book, right? But have a shared language that you and your team will use to, to get started using Agile. Right? And then I recommend that you choose a project that you are about to kick off, right? not a project that is right in the middle of it, start from scratch, right? and select a project that has a, a use case for Agile. Do you expect a lot of change to come? Is the business sponsor or the organization sponsor someone who already uses Agile or is likely to be amenable to that approach? Um, and so, and do you have a team that is interested and willing to give this a try? So what you're going to be doing here is taking an agile or iterative approach to implementing agile. So you want to set those first iterations up for success, knowing that you're going to tweak the processes and make it work for your own team as you go. And you want to make sure that your, your first project in is as amenable to that as possible so that everybody can be learning as you go. Great advice. Megan, thank you so much. We're short on time, so I'm going to wind down quickly. But before I let you go and our listeners go, 
I want everyone to know that there is help. You've published a book from ATD Press called Agile for Instructional Designers. It's just a click away at your favorite.com. Uh, you can get it in hard copy or ebook versions. So seek that out. Agile for Instructional Designers by Megan Torrance. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. Anthony, I've enjoyed it immensely. So thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you again and have a wonderful day, Megan. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.